0: Good morning. I would ask, if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. The Word this morning is brought to us uh, from the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, uh, verses 26-31. to 31. And the Word of the Lord reads this way, For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, and this is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father,
2: Father, as we come to your word, help us to understand what we need to understand. Help us to love that which you've brought us to understand. Help us to live in light of the truth that you've given us this morning. ask all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Well, what fun we get to have again this morning. The title of my sermon is How to Lose Your Salvation, Part 2. How to Lose Your Salvation, Part 2. Or Don't Lose Your Salvation, Part 2. This is one of four times in the book of Hebrews uh, where the idea of apostasy is addressed, one of the four primary times where falling away from the faith is discussed. If you listen to Cold Pizza this past week, Pastor Jeff was grouching about not getting to preach last week's sermon. About halfway through this week, I thought about asking him to preach this one. Here you go. Now, the, the sermon, Don't Lose Your Salvation, that I preached a number of weeks ago, I would encourage you to go back and re listen to that sermon. Uh, I'm going to re teach a few parts of that, rehash, restate a few parts of that sermon, but I'm going to assume a bunch. That's part of the advantage. And that's part of how verse-by-verse exposition works. I get to build and assume you've laid the same bricks so that I don't have to go lay all the same bricks again. That's how you build a house. At some point, you have to lay down bricks so that you can move on to the next bricks so that you can get to the roof. Uh, And some of us are are still not putting down the bricks at the bottom. So put those bricks at the bottom so that we can move on to the next bricks uh, for your good and for the good of those around you, and ultimately for the glory of God. To go back and re-listen to that sermon if you're confused, um, hopefully you'll be less confused after re-listening to it again. Uh, Next point, uh, before we get to the the main point, is a reminder, the same thing I said back in the last sermon, that part of what's at stake or or part of what... um, uh, is a big thrust. If we step back out of just verses twenty six through thirty one that Ben just read for us, and take a look at the broader context, what's being said leading into these verses is that there is an urgent need or an urgent reason for growth in the faith. the The solution to not falling away is not maintaining, but it's growth. It's moving forward. Notice that right before this passage, it's all about growth in the faith. Not forsaking the things that lead to growth. Growing in understanding, growing in knowledge. How do we do that? Not forsaking gathering together. Spurring one another on to love and good deeds. Holding fast to our confession. Why? Because what's at stake is losing our salvation. If you're not conquering by faith, you will be conquered in faith. If you're not conquering by faith, you will be conquered in faith. To paraphrase that, if you don't grow in all the let us verses that we just read about last week, you will lose your salvation. That's the flow of the text. Let us do this, let us do this, let us do this. For if we go on sinning, this will happen. If we do the opposite of the let us's, we will, and go on sinning, we will no longer, there will no longer remain a sacrifice for sins. Now, I know this idea, as I said before in the previous sermon on losing your salvation. I know this is an uncomfortable topic, particularly for two groups of people. For those who grew up in a once saved, always saved church, you're saying something probably, well hopefully no longer because you listened to the first sermon well in that passage, but, but if you haven't, then you're still saying something like, what's this about apostasy? There can't be apostasy. I don't have to worry about losing my salvation. What do you mean I can lose my salvation? And you're real uncomfortable right now. Maybe the seat's getting a little warm, maybe your chest is a little tight, but that's good. It's good for us to sit in tension sometimes, and I'm okay with you being a little anxious for a few moments. The second group is those who aren't actually redeemed, but you think you are. So this is uncomfortable because you're not actually redeemed. So what happens for you is anytime someone says you're failing at any of God's laws because you haven't actually repented of those sins and found forgiveness from God through Christ, any revealing of our inadequacy or your inadequacy
1: is a threat to your feeling saved. So as we preach and as we continue,
2: as the Bible continues to shoot holes in your self-righteousness, you keep plugging it with self-justification. And so here at the thought that, oh, I may not be able to keep my salvation because whether you realize it or not, it's because I'm earning, I think I'm earning my salvation. What's being being threatened is your ability to prove yourself in your self-righteousness. Again, I'm okay with you being a little hot and bothered for a few moments. So There's an urgent reason for growth in the faith, and that is falling away such that there is no longer a hope for you. Indeed, not only is there no longer a hope, but what does he say? I mean, there's language here that is just crazy he's in verse 30, For we know him who said vengeance is mine and i will repay and again the lord will judge his people it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living god that's what's at stake if there's not progress in faith there will be defeat in faith and that defeat in faith is not just a bummer of a life the defeat in faith is falling into the hands of the living god who can kill you past death. I mean, that, that's the picture. That, that, that his punishment will outlive your physical death. Because your soul and your body through eternity will face the wrath of God. That's what's at stake. More on that in a bit. So, as we're gonna understand what's happening here in Hebrews 10, verse 26 through 31. Just like the last time, we need to ask a couple questions. One of those being, who are the recipients of this warning? Who are the recipients? Who's intended to hear the warning, you could fall away? Who's intended? Who's the recipients? Verse 26, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. That, tr- that, that truth hurts, apparently. I hope he's okay. There's two opposing views. Two opposing views, both within orthodoxy, both reformed understandings, one right and one wrong. You can hold either one of these views, for the record, and still be a member of this church, just in case you feel threatened in your view that I don't hold or share with you. Uh, The first one is this, that the recipients are people who represent a Christian externally, but it doesn't represent an actual believer. So this person who quote-unquote falls away doesn't fall away from actually being a Christian, but falls away from looking like a Christian. Now a lot of people, and I think a lot of even faithful pastors and commentators and Christians hold that view, I think you have to stretch the text to mean that. I think you have to make the text say something it's not saying to hold that view. The second viable view is that these are people who represent real Christians, that these are actual Christians that are receiving this warning. So the person who falls away really does fall away from being a real Christian. And as I said last time, namely, you don't have to put your "fall away in scare quotes. Obviously, I'll hold the, the second view, and I think you should, too. I think to, to understand who the recipients are, you need to do a, what's called a synoptic reading of the book of Hebrews, meaning you have to take the whole picture of Hebrews here, the whole picture. Remember, this is a pastoral letter written to a people and it was meant to be understood as one piece of literature. This is part of the downside of preaching verse-by-verse exposition because it's easy to miss the forest because you're so focused on a tree. It's easy to miss the picture because you're focused on a pixel. So if we are to do a synoptic reading and just to to try to... uh, Step back up and see the forest. If you read the other warning passage in in Hebrews, these warnings are all addressed very clearly to believers. Hebrews 2, I'm just going to fly through these quickly. You probably can't write this fast. Hebrews 2, therefore we must pay... Much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Hebrews 3, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Hebrews 4, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Hebrews 10, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge, that's the one we just talked about today. Hebrews 12, And coming, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who was warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. He's not been talking to fake Christians in the book of Hebrews. I think you have to make the text make a really sharp turn, and then after this passage, make a really sharp turn back to make it say, fake Christians. He's been talking to believers. I think if you don't read this as believers, then you're failing to read the book synoptically. He's teaching us a theology here by the whole book. So that's kind of looking at it broadly so we don't miss the trees. I'm sorry, we don't, we don't back, back up. So we don't miss the forest for the tree. But now, if we're just going to look at a tree and just look at the details here in this particular verse, I think the decisive evidence in the immediate context is where he says, for if we, right? Uh, Pretty plain. Uh, For if we, who does he mean by we? He means we, right? He means I, whoever it is that's writing this, and whoever it is that's reading this. We. I know we can change what pronouns mean today. This one means the writer and the hearers. We. And then, for further clarification, for if we go on sinning deliberately after what? Receiving the knowledge of the truth. So these are the, the we. It's also the people who have received, have heard and taken in the truth. So I think the recipients are very clearly believers. Now, what I want to do now is, is think about all right uh, the idea of apostasy and stepping away. And A.W. Pink, in his sermon on this passage, does, does an incredible job of laying out what he calls the steps that precede apostasy, like the steps leading to apostasy, because the reality is, is that no one, or barely anyone, if anyone, goes on from having faith to then quickly not having faith. There's steps that lead up to it. And so these recipients, so I think it's a good question and a good thing for us to answer, what are the steps that lead to apostasy? Because if you see in verse 10, I'm sorry, chapter 10, verse 26, for if we go on sinning deliberately, there's this process. He doesn't say, for if you sin, you've become apostate. He doesn't say, for if you sin, you've lost your salvation. For if we go on sinning deliberately, there's an ongoingness to it. And we'll, we're going to define more of that, but for now, that's the context that we're in. So first of all, what is apostasy? It's once having faith and then not having faith. 1 Timothy 1.19 says, holding faith and a good conscience by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Like, I don't know if you know shipwreck, meaning like the ship's no longer viable, The faith is no longer alive. It is no longer floating in the ocean. It's at the bottom of the ocean floor like the submersible is. It's a returning to. It's a returning to and being overcome by the world. So faith is departing from the world. This is a returning to the world. That's apostasy. So again, pink curates a a list of steps that that I'm going to use that precede apostasy. Again, most people don't go from great faith to no faith overnight. So what are these steps? First, there is a looking back. It's not going to be up on the screen, but I'll say them slow. There's a looking back. Luke 6, I'm sorry, Luke 9, 62 Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Did you hear that? No one who begins the work of the kingdom and then looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. That's why such a big deal is made about the Israelites who said, well, back in Egypt, well, back in Egypt, well, back in Egypt, that, the people who says, well, well, what about back in Egypt? Or the ones that are not fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus says the same thing here in Luke 9, 62. Another example from the Old Testament, like Lot's wife, who though she had outwardly left Sodom, yet her heart was still in Sodom. Listen, it's really easy for us to look back on life with a longing for the things that sin provided us or look back on life, longing
1: sinfully on the things that we had or we didn't have. We're all tempted with that. We're tempted to move forward with our hand to the plow
2: while looking back thinking, well, that's what I want. And then we move forward, and Jesus is saying, you're not fit for the kingdom. This is where apostasy begins. It's by taking your eyes. You didn't take, notice, notice Jesus' language. You didn't take your hand off the plow. You're still doing all of the quote-unquote righteous things. But your eyes have begun to take a gander backward. Just, most of us are not going to take the hands off the plow. That would be too obvious The alarms would go off too quick. But it's just that lingering thought, well, what if I just had that? Or what if my life just looked this way? Or 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 what if I, you know, just didn't do this thing in God's kingdom and I just did that thing? You know, I used to do that and it wasn't
1: that bad. It's a looking back. Second, there's a drawing back. A drawing back. We're all going to be tempted
2: to say something like, the requirements of Christ are too rigorous for me. The requirements of Christ are too rigorous for me. And in our highly enlightened age, we will find all of the great justification and reasoning and even theological things that we can throw at this when really we're just lazy and we don't want to follow Jesus. A drawing back. Hebrews 10, 38. But my righteousness, I'm sorry, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. For some in this category, in this step, it's just an outright rejection. Man, the standards are just too high. Just too much pressure. For others, it's just taking the easy way out. How often do we just take the easy way out? We know what God requires of us and we just take the easy way out. What are you doing? You you may not be mentally saying, God, your standards are too high for me, but your actions are doing that. So just take the easy way out. Instead of facing the problems facing righteousness and growing, we just let this slip or we let that slip or we just don't go the extra step that we needed to to be faithful you're
1: drawing back third a turning back there's a turning back
2: the path of godliness is too narrow to suit the lustings of the flesh pink says that the path of godliness is too narrow it's too tight. It doesn't suit the lustings. I hope you can notice like in these steps, there's a, there's a, a climaxing that's happening here. Because now, there's a, well, I, I, I really want these things. There's a lusting after the things of the earth. John 6, let me read you, it's, it's a rather long quote here, but six verses. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe, in parentheses, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him, end of the parentheses. And he said, Jesus said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Hey Jesus, it's just a little too hard. Hey Jesus, you're just a little too strict. Hey Jesus, I just don't really like the way you talk. Your tone's a little too rough. And then Jesus just capitalized and says. And this is why
1: I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father grants it. And after this, many of them left Jesus. I'm I'm sure when it comes to, like, turning back, we have all sorts
2: of justifications. Wow, I just just think those rules are unloving. That's how you get an 80-year-old grandma to affirm her 15-year-old gay grandson. Well, that just isn't loving. Wow, I think they're just being legalistic. You know, a little indulgence in this sexually explicit movie will be fine. The lustings of the flesh. Wow, I don't see anything wrong with hanging with these pagans all the time. I mean, isn't that what Jesus did?
1: Yeah, but Jesus didn't succumb to their influence. There's a turning back.
2: Fourth, there's a falling back which is fatal. There's a falling back which is fatal. Isaiah 28, 13, And the word of the Lord will be to them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, and they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken.
1: And now you have fallen back. As I have, I've told you, your elders have
2: told you, we've told you from the text over and over and over again, every decision matters. Each glance matters. Every dream matters. Every consideration matters. Every direction matters. Every relationship matters. And so on. Any and all direction, any and all choice, opportunity whether that's how you speak to your spouse across the table, how you discipline your kids, what you choose to eat. All of it could be looking back and a longing for something that sin has provided you. It could even be, listen to this, it could even be a good thing that you're looking at right now.
1: But maybe your motive is rooted in looking back. I think it would be really important for you to like, memorize these
2: steps and go, so that you can recognize, oh, wow, man, like I'm like step two or three into this.
1: I gotta, I gotta, it's a hard walk back, and I'm going to need help to walk back. So who are the recipients and kind of a
2: sub-point in there? What are the steps that lead to this apostasy? Next, the
1: nature of the warning. The nature of the warning. Again, we need to do this synoptically.
2: So let's take in a, a, a broad stroke here across the book of Hebrews. Again, I'm going to fly too fast for you to write down. Hebrews 2:1, he warned against drifting away. Hebrews 2.3 warned against neglecting their salvation. Hebrews 3, warned against hardening their hearts. 3.14, warned to continue to hold on to Christ. 4.11, warned to labor to enter God's rest. 6.1, warned to become mature. 6.6, warned against falling away. Now here's the key. We're going to understand the nature of the warning. In this context, none of these situations have the warned actually done what they are warned against even those who are drinking milk like they're they're drinking milk that's that's indeed what's happening but what he's saying to them is if you don't move on from the milk then bad things will happen bad things will happen it's future namely they will fall away so what's happening is they're being urged to be diligent and refrain from dullness So that they will possess the promises. So what is the nature of the warnings? To use a bigger word here for us, the warnings are prospective, meaning that they are something that is likely to happen in the future. But there's no indication that this has happened yet. Prospective, something likely to happen in the future as opposed to retrospective, meaning something that's happened in the past. So here's what you need to hear. In none of these warnings has this event actually taken place, but there is a chance that it could. No one has yet to fall away, but there is the prospect that it could happen. Again, he hasn't said that this has happened to anyone yet. In our current passage, there is no indication that this has happened yet. However, the Christian, though, is highly liable or likely to make shipwreck of their faith. Remember that 1 Timothy 1.19 passage we read? If I can go find it. Holding faith and good conscience by rejecting this... Some have made shipwreck of their faith. Pink says this. He still has within him, meaning man, mankind, womankind, still has within him a nature which craves the vanities of the world, and that craving has to be denied or he will never reach heaven. So here's what we're going to go after in this, this next few minutes is the danger. Not the danger of judgment. But the danger at which we face in every decision, the danger we face in every moment, from within, we are tempted at every turn. We're tempted to lust. We're tempted to covet what our neighbors have. We're tempted to be discontent. We're tempted towards all sorts of things, longing for something
1: more. From without, we are the object of Satan's attacks. It's,
2: it's likely not him directly. Most of us are not that high on his radar, but he has lots of minions, both in the flesh and not.
1: He's established great systems to tempt us. So from without, he's like a roaring lion
2: seeking whom he may devour. And some of us like, don't live with, like he could be right around the corner. I'm not telling you to act scared. Because we are more than conquerors in Christ, right? Like, there's, but we have to be aware. There's a difference between
1: being scared and being aware. Being prepared. We're in danger of the devil. I mean, just look at the, the
2: products that are for sale. TVs and movies. Music.
1: What your pagan friends are into. These are all temptations. And just because you said
2: some prayer, signed some paper, and got dunked in some water doesn't mean you will not succumb to those. We are in desperate need of these warnings. God is showing us what's at the end of the road should we choose the path of sinfulness. Should we choose, as Pink calls it, self-will and self-indulgence. What's at the end of that path? Falling into the hands of the living God. And not as a
1: kind, warm, loving father. But as a judge executing wrath. Now the warnings, as we we talked about
2: in the last one, are a means to urge perseverance. Perseverance.
1: They're meant to be a hedge. The warning is meant to be a guardrail. Pink says this, God has
2: mercifully placed a hedge across each precipice which confronts the professing Christian. And listen to these words from Pink. And woe to him if he disregards those warnings and pushes through that hedge. Here's another tattoo idea. Don't push through the hedge.
1: Might be a little wordy for some of you. Don't push through the hedge. Be a great conversation starter. Write down your arm. Don't push through the hedge. Pink says this,
2: take the most careful and constant pains to avoid the unpardonable sin. What is the unpardonable sin? It's the rejection of Jesus Christ.
1: That's it. Every other sin can receive pardon. We tend to say, don't worry about
2: it. You can never lose your salvation. But here's the deal. Here's where... To reject that, or to live that way, or to have that belief, is to reject one of the primary means that God intends to use to preserve your faith and my faith, namely, by us taking heed of the warning. I think this is another one of the reasons why we have such terrible, ridiculous, pathetic Christians in the West today. Someone told them, get saved, you can never lose your salvation, and they said, it's party time. And now all those Christians, it's all about a relationship, or they go to church for fog machines, or affirm homosexuality, even some that call themselves Reformed. But if they had, and we had a real understanding of this passage, then we would act like Christians.
1: God intends the warning to motivate perseverance. I'm
2: going to talk about what does that look like here in just a second. But just as a reminder, for those who need a refresher from the last time I preached on this, let me connect a couple dots
1: for you. He doesn't say anywhere in here that anyone has actually done this. But
2: he's saying it's a warning that it could happen. That warning that it could happen is to motivate, it's to push us to depend on Christ, to lean on his graces. And here's what's true. If that happens, you are secure to the very end. So do I believe in eternal security? Absolutely. How does God eternally secure you? in part
1: by warning you to not fall away. Pink says this,
2: a small leak, so let me back up. What does this perseverance look like? Right, so I'm going to start to answer that question. Pink says this, a small leak neglected will sink a ship just as effectually as the most boisterous sea." So the most raging storm, that just a small neglected leak will sink a ship just as surely as the biggest storm. But we act as though those little leaks are just no big deal. Any one single small sin that goes unrepented for could lead to eternal damnation. We must ask the Lord... Church, we must ask the Lord to help us deal with every offense that might rise up in us. Don't let any of it linger. Don't let it take root. Don't let it sit there. That weed will grow. How many gardeners in here? How hard you got to work to get those weeds to grow? Not very hard, right? How hard you got to work to keep them back so that your other good plants flourish? It's a lot of hard work. Then weeds keep coming back, don't they? How does sin? It sin's the same way. You don't have to work. It'll come back. You have to work to keep it at bay. We confess it as sin to the Lord, asking for forgiveness and then walking it out in repentance in faith. Here's the deal. Here's what happens, and Pink does a good job, and Spurgeon's got it. I'm going to quote Spurgeon here in a second, too. But, but, they, but they do a good job of helping us see that, that these little sins, these little secret sins, the little small leak in the ship leads to something which leads to something else. So I'm going to give you that progression here quickly. That little leak, that little sin, if it doesn't get confessed and repented of, it becomes what's called presumptuous sins. Presumptuous sins. And we'll define what that is. A presumptuous sin is knowingly and deliberately ignoring God's commandments, defying his authority, and recklessly going on in a course of self-pleasing regardless of consequences. That's a, it's a, it's a big definition to say simply this, at the risk of oversimplifying it. Knowingly and deliberately doing what God has told you not to do so that small little leak turns into a leak that you look at and you say i'm good with that leak i'm fine with it being there now how crazy is that if you carry the leak metaphor
1: right you're you're stupid yes i said that word i'll see if i can use it nine more times you wouldn't do that if you were a captain of a ship
2: Husbands, fathers, don't be okay with the leak. You're the
1: captain of the ship. Get rid of the leak. Your family will drown. Spurgeon says this on on this verse, Secret sin is a stepping
2: stone to presumptuous sin, and that is the vestibule of the sin which is unto death. It's like the entryway, it's the foyer, it's the commons (laughs) that leads unto death. You've walked yourself right to the front door of apostasy. When you let this little leak turn into a leak that you're totally fine with, you're now standing at death's door. When one has reached that terrible stage... Pink says, he is but a short step indeed from committing the sin for which there is no forgiveness, and then to be abandoned by God both in this world and in that which is to come. But here's the deal. Presumptuous sins. Here's the, this is why you've got to take care of the sin when it's just a little small leak. Just like the leak in a boat. How much harder would it be to patch a leak that's, you know, uh, uh, a centimeter versus one that's an inch or a a foot, right? A foot in diameter. It'd be a lot harder to patch that hole, right? Well, when a little sin turns into a presumptuous sin, it gets that much harder to repent. Why? Because at that point, because you're okay with that sin, now you're in open, hard-hearted rebellion against God concerning that sin. And it's that hard-heartedness, it's that... It's that seared conscience. It's harder to repent for that than the sin of mistreating your spouse, or the sin of lying or the, the, the sin of I, "I lusted for a moment," and, and that was not OK. God, please forgive me." Because now you've got not just the sin that you're committed, but now you've got your hard-heartedness that you've got to repent for too. That's harder. Presumptuous sins are not easily repented of. Listen, some of that is to give you a warning. To say, don't, I mean, if you're there, get help and repent and walk away and by the power of God, you can. But the warning is, don't get to that point. Repent quickly and thoroughly and get it done. And live in freedom. Here's what he's saying. Little sins left unconfessed lead to presumptuous sins knowingly and deliberately defying the Lord Jesus Christ. And presumptuous sins are the gateway to committing the sin of rejecting Jesus. So if it's not grim enough for you yet, what are the consequences for those who don't heed the warning? What are the consequences? Verses 26b-30 through of Hebrews 10. Here's the consequences for those who push on through the hedge. It's a big, long statement there. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Listen, there is likely more at stake here than you realize. Why is it that so many Christians can sin against God without seemingly any prick to their conscience? Why? I have a, f- a few Um, speculations here because some Christians believe only a crown or two is at stake. I mean the crowns I get to cast at the feet of Jesus. Well you know that one sin I I just won't get that big of a reward when I get to heaven. That's just one less crown that I'm not going. Well that's true but that could also be a step towards pushing on through the hedge. Or second some people believe that only joy is at stake. Well, if I just keep petting the sin, the only thing that's at stake here is I just won't be that joyful of a person. So t- today's joy is out the window and, well, that's a bummer. Well, one day of joy out the window and not, quote, loving Jesus out the window is, is just makes it one easier step to have two days, which makes it one easier step to have three days and one easier step, one closer step to A lifetime. There's more at stake than just experiencing the good Christian life. Well, I guess I might just get a little bit less of a return on my investment tomorrow. I mean, I think those those things are all true, but there's more at stake than that. That There's more at stake. Listen to Pink's words. The blood of Christ covers no sins that have not been truly repented of and confessed to God with a broken heart. I know, I know, but what about eternal security? Think of it more like this
1: you are eternally secure to walk in repentance and faith with a broken heart. Listen, a true Christian, when they have sinned, they confess those sins to the Lord.
2: And they know then true and full forgiveness by faith. So what's at stake? If it's more than this, what's at stake? A fearful expectation of judgment for those who go on deliberately sinning. A fearful expectation. They will fall away. It's that simple. That's the warning. What will they face? Judgment. Listen, we're reminded here of God's judgment, how terrible that would be, Hebrews 10, 27, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. He's saying if you go on deliberately sinning, you're an adversary of God. You will face his fearful judgment. And if that's not scary, there's no hope of restoration. He means what he says, if you fall away from faith, there is no hope of restoration to repentance. That's what he means. There there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. This is a little bit of a review from the previous sermon. Listen, there is no sacrifice that can be offered for those who once received Christ's atonement and then reject Christ's atonement. To To turn from faith is to say this, Christ's crucifixion isn't enough for me the first time when it was applied to me. And that's why he's saying to get saved a second time is impossible because that would be crucifying Christ again. So he's not saying that it's, that it's not uh, sufficient for our sins. What he's saying is it's already been applied once. That's why he gives, again, back to the previous term, that's why he gives the soil, crop, and thorns, thistles example. If you were to invest all of your time and resources into a plot of land, you cultivate it, you plant it, you water it, and all that comes of it is thorns and thistles, you can and should mark that land for
1: destruction and leave it to burn. That's his point. If God were to invest the blood of his son in a
2: person's life, redeeming that person from the grave, and that person then was to reject Christ, God would not act to redeem that person again because it would be crucifying his son once again. And this is a promise from
1: Almighty God. I said this in the last sermon. I'll say it again here. We need a Hobby
2: Lobby sign that says, no second chances for apostates. In all seriousness, that would be a fine warning to put next to your, I can do all things through God who strengthens me on your verse when you look at that in the morning on your mirror.
1: It's a scary promise. It should be a scary promise. If you're redeemed and you reject Jesus, there's no longer any hope whatsoever.
2: Again, I know that's scary. It should be. That's the whole point. But we live in a world where we isolate ourselves from all fears. I don't want to isolate my kid from the fear of getting hit by a car in traffic. That's a good fear for them
1: to have. Now, do I want them to fear all cars, like riding in one? Well, no. No. Or should they fear getting hit by one? Yes. Just
2: because something is fearful doesn't mean it's bad or wrong. Next, fear is a good and fine motivator. Fear is a good and fine motivator. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, verse 31. I think some of us have bought into, though, that the only motivator for righteousness has to be some positive emotions towards Jesus.
1: The author of Hebrews didn't get that woke nonsense here. He says it's a fearful thing. Let me ask you this question. Is that fearful to you? Why or why not?
2: Let me quote Pink here. Here is the unescapable conclusion which must be drawn from all that has been before us. This word fearful ought to make every trifler with sin Tremble. To fall into the hands of is a metaphor denoting the utter helplessness of the victim when captured by his enemy. The one, capital O, into whose hands the apostate falls is the living God. A mortal man, however incensed he may be, cannot carry his vengeance beyond death, but God's power is not bounded. By so narrow limits. No, forever and ever will God's wrath burn against the objects of his judgment. But why wouldn't someone heed this warning? Why would, why would some of us be tempted to not heed this warning? For some of us, because we're too confident to prove our own selves. We think, oh, yes, my faith is sure. Yes, my faith is sure. Yes and your confidence is in your faith and
1: confidence is in your experience of your faith and if you're too confident there won't be any fear let me
2: read for you 2 Corinthians 13:5 and tell, th- being too confident to examine your faith means you don't understand 2 Corinthians 13:5 he says examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith test yourselves Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet
1: the test? This should regularly drive us to say to the Lord,
2: Father, if there be any sin in me, please reveal it to me through your word and your church and
1: your spirit. And grant me repentance. See, evidence
2: of true redemption is the abandoning of every course of self-will and surrendering it to the Lordship of Jesus Christ.
1: Hating all sin. And having a faith that overcomes that sin. Let me read to you another
2: quote by Pink. He says this, enable me to measure myself faithfully by thy word, so that I may discover whether or not my heart has been renewed, whether I have abandoned every course of self-will and truly surrendered to thee, whether I have so repented that I hate all sin and fervently long to be free from its power, loathe myself and seek diligently to deny myself, whether my faith is that which overcomes the world or whether it be only a mere notional thing which produces no godly living, whether I am a fruitful branch of the vine or only a cucumber on the ground, in short, whether I be a new creature in Christ or only a painted hypocrite. If I have an honest heart, then I am willing,
1: ye anxious to face, And know the real truth about myself. Our confidence, if salvation is not in faith, but it's the object of our faith, is Jesus. Let me end with this last point. Loved or dreaded, what shall it be? Loved or dreaded, what shall it be? Pete gives gives us one last thought here. By the penitent and obedient,
2: God is loved and adored. But by the impenitent and defiant, he is to be dreaded. Listen, the the terror of the Lord. We've exchanged any terror of the Lord for just warm fuzzies. But the terror of the Lord must be a part of our vocabulary. It's got to be a part of our walk with the Lord. It's got to be a part of our sharing of the gospel. And how, the, like, how incredible the terror of the Lord ought to stir up God's servants to warn and persuade men before the day of grace is finally closed. For that door is closed, Like you see that great picture with Noah and the ark, right? There comes a point where the door was closed. The opportunity for salvation was over. And then it was nothing but God's wrath. That should stir us up to warn each other. And how it should make each one of us walk softly before the Lord sparing
1: no pains to make our calling and election sure. Let me remind us here of 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 5 through 10. For this very
2: reason Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. It's very parallel to the to the uh, let us verses that we just read in Hebrews. Let us do this. Let us do this. Let us do this. For if we don't do that, for if we go on sinning deliberately. This is what's at stake. This is what awaits God's judgment. So he says, let us us supplement faith. Let us go on to have virtue and to add knowledge and self-control and so on. For if these qualities are yours
1: and are increasing... They keep you from being
2: ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers... Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, listen to these words, for if you practice these qualities, if you go on to grow, if you supplement faith with knowledge and knowledge of self-control, he says this, for if you practice these qualities, you will never
1: fail or fall. You will never fall. That's assurance. It's perseverance. Putting a hedge around us. There's no one who has
2: ever been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, has ever not supplemented faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and so on and so forth. And those people, not a one of them has ever fallen. As so we confirm our calling and election, as we add these qualities to our lives by the power of God, by through His Word, through the community, as we add self control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love, and these qualities keep us from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our
1: Lord. And what is it that sets us free? Truth. Who's truth Himself? Jesus.
2: Without these qualities, you become nearsighted, so nearsighted, he says, that you are blind. And you forget that you were cleansed from your former sins. You see, that's, where, that's what the, the apostate forgets, that he was cleansed from his
1: former sins. Now to choose a life of indulging in those sins. if we do these things, we shall never fall, he says. We shall never fall. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that
2: these warnings would serve to stoke a fire in our hearts, a desire in our minds to know you, to add to our faith these things like Virtue and knowledge and self control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection, that these things would increase in us. And also, Father, that we would recognize when these things are decreasing, that that's a warning. When our brotherly affection is decreasing, it's a warning. When our steadfastness is decreasing, it's a warning. When our self-control is decreasing, it's a warning. When virtue and knowledge is decreasing, it's a warning. Because what's at stake? Faith. And there's more at stake in that than just simply a less enjoyable life today
1: or tomorrow. But the fearful prospect of your judgment. So, Father, I pray that you would add these things to our faith, that you would supplement our faith, that you
2: would give us by your word and your power and the graces like your church
1: and prayer, that we would add these things to our faith, and that our hope would rest ultimately
2: not in our faith, but in the object of our faith, Jesus Christ himself. For it's in his name we pray, amen.